traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance editor, and this is Money Talks. We'll come to the dramatic scenes around global stock markets in a moment. And later in the programme, why should Britain care about the trade deals it's about to lose? We know that some of those countries have been trying to grab extra concessions. They're seeing this as an opportunity to get more, to squeeze more out of the UK. And getting crafty. Why going out need no longer be a headache for teetotalers. The alcohol is removed from the spirit and they're distilled with botanicals. So, so like gin, you would drink it with tonic water and apparently it's very tasty. That noise you may hear in the background is, of course, the gentle tinkling of crashing stock markets. As so often, the global market turbulence started in America. And I'm joined by our US economics editor, Henry Kerr, who's in Washington. So this runoff sell-off in the markets seems to have started with last Friday's figures showing wages in America rising somewhat faster than expected. I mean, how justified are the fears that provokes of firstly higher inflation and then higher interest rates? Well, that's right. There was a strong wage figure last Friday, slightly higher than expected. But you've got to put it in context. It, was, it showed 2.9% wage growth. The series uh, of wage growth that that came from is a pretty volatile one. And overall, the pattern of wage growth during this recovery has been fairly steady and has tracked the job market fairly well. We've got had a gradual rise. So I think the most surprising thing about this turn the markets is how suddenly and adversely they've reacted to one wage number, which was it was an upside surprise, but wasn't some kind of drastic surprise showing runaway inflation is around the corner. So do you have an explanation for that? What else is worrying people? Well, I think the problem is that we've had several years of low volatility in financial markets. And also we've had the Fed constantly postponing its rate rise plans. We've had deflationary shocks, or at least disinflationary shocks, which have uh, created an environment where investors have worried that you, you might have a sustained period of even deflation around the corner. And I think what you're seeing is you're seeing that kind of tail risk of deflation start to go away. The Fed's plans for rate rises begin to look more credible. And investors have uh, are, are just beginning to price that in. I mean, that can't explain the kind of drastic move that you uh, had in the market on Monday when stocks were down 4.1%, the, the S&P 500 that is. But it does seem to be fear of monetary policy tightening uh, that, that has set this all off. Uh, it's just that the market is, is moving much more suddenly than is justified by the economic data, at least. Indeed. So it doesn't uncover genuine worries about the US economy. For example, that the deficit is going to blow out unsustainably because of President Trump's uh, spending plans and his tax cuts. Well, of course, it is true that we're getting this fiscal stimulus in 2018 from the tax bill. We're also going to get more government spending once the lawmakers in Congress have agreed on a budget deal for next year. They're probably going to boost defence spending somewhat. We might even get a push on infrastructure. So it is true that you're having a loosening 
of the purse strings at a point in the economic cycle where unemployment is already low. And that's historically unusual. It's a bit of an economic experiment. The, the question is, how much of a risk does that pose? Now, obviously, if you look at the unemployment number, uh, you might think, well, this is completely ill-timed fiscal stimulus combined with low interest rates. Isn't the economy going to overheat? Won't the Fed have to yank rates up to get inflation under control? But although what I said about wage growth being fairly steadily rising through the cycle is true, that, of course, hasn't been the case with inflation. Inflation is still comfortably beneath the Federal Reserve's 2% target. Uh, Core inflation, which excludes volatile food and energy prices, is at 1.5%. So that's still got some way to rise. And although the unemployment number is low, there are a lot of Americans who left the workforce during the recession who haven't come back. So Today, if you look at the workers aged between 25 and 54, about 79% of them are in employment. At the peak for that series, in around 2000s, the last time uh, America ran a kind of hot labour market, 82% of them have jobs. And that three percentage point gap represents about 4 million workers. So there is an argument that you could actually yet run the labour market quite a bit hotter uh, without inflation taking off too much. And even if it does rise, I think it's unlikely that you're going to see some kind of very dangerous acceleration in inflation. It's more likely that you would have a a kind of modest overshoot of the 2% target. From all that you're saying, Henry, it sounds as if the argument is that there's no fundamental underlying cause for economic concern in the United States. But do you get a sense that policymakers are watching the markets rather nervously and that they might be prompted into making some sort of gesture to placate them? Well, we've of course, got a new Federal Reserve chair, Jerome Powell, who's been welcomed into his job with these rather drastic falls in financial markets. I think it's unlikely that he would panic and change monetary policy drastically in response to the sort of moves we saw on Monday. I mean, depending what happens over the rest of the week, you never know what what might happen. But the people have been expecting the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates in March uh, and three times this year, possibly four times. You can imagine stock market falls leading the Fed to postpone rate rises by a quarter or two if they're very bad. So you could imagine rates not going up in March and going up in June instead, for example. But this is, in the scheme of things, tweaking around the edges. And although the market falls in the context of recent uh, low volatility look dramatic, it's more correction territory than anything like a crash. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect anyone to get too pessimistic about the real economy yet. Henry Kerr, US economics editor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Next. Supporters of Brexit are desperate for the UK to sign shiny new trade deals that will show whinging Ramonas that there is life beyond the EU. But before it trots off to make agreements with the Indians, Chinese or Americans, might it be better for the UK to preserve the ones it already has via the EU? I'm joined by the Economist economics correspondent, Samir Keynes. Hello, Samir. Hello. Now, one of the many puzzles about Brexit for me is that everybody wants who wants Brexit wants the UK to sign new trade deals. But when you ask them which ones, they say the ones that will be easiest will be the ones where the EU already has one. Is that right? In terms of priorities for the trade negotiators, I think the first thing to say is that obviously the most important trade deal that Britain needs to be thinking about right now is the one with its biggest, closest trading partner, which is the EU. 
that's the answer to question number one. Question number two is then, you know, where do we look? And and yes, so so there are lots of people saying, you know, the EU has already negotiated these trade deals with, there's, there's varying reports, but somewhere around 36, 40-ish uh, separate trade deals with these other 60-plus countries. And so there the idea is, well, they've already spent years and years negotiating these deals. Why not just copy and paste them over, replace the word EU with the word UK, um, and then, hey, we've got we've got some shiny new deals. And and the reasons to prioritize that would be that, well, they're already in place, so losing them would be very disruptive for trade that's already going on. Um, it should be easier just rolling those over than it would be forging a whole new trade deal with China or India. Good luck with that, by the way. Uh, they're famously difficult trading partners to get deals with. And so so that's the idea. That's, I think, why you should you should prioritize these ones. But it raises an obvious question and a point made by, I think, the Indonesian trade minister more than a year ago. He said, yes, yeah, we've been through all these negotiations with the EU. Sure, we can just substitute the UK for the EU in these agreements and go ahead. However, of course, we're going to want a better deal because the UK is a much smaller market for us than the EU is. Exactly. And that's why this is a problem. If it was just a copy and paste job, then there was this wouldn't require any negotiators' attention at all. They could just, just transfer them easy. But the point is that these are bilateral relationships. So the other country has to agree to the new post-Brexit agreement. And we know that some of those countries have been trying to grab extra concessions. They, they're seeing this as an opportunity to get more, to squeeze more out of the UK. And in some cases, this is justified. I mean, if you think that when they originally signed the deal, they thought they were getting access to the UK's market, and also through the UK, they could access the EU, then by Britain leaving the EU, they've actually got worse access than they had before. So in some cases, they're just saying, hey, we need compensation for that loss that you're inflicting on us for leaving the EU. You mentioned rather dismissively the three big ones, America, China, India. Do you see any prospect of, in the foreseeable future, I mean, in, in a short period of time of reaching a, a bilateral trade agreement with either any of those countries? So I think there's clearly a lot of political will to agree something between the Brits and the Americans. The Americans would like to agree some kind of bilateral deal. It would be a great ceremony for Donald Trump if he could, if he could sign a piece of paper with the Brits. On the other hand, he's never seen a trade deal he likes. He's never seen a trade deal he likes. And I think the, the, the big question mark there is how deep would a trade deal be? Right. So the EU has spent huge amounts of time negotiating these fairly deep deals with Canada, Japan. Uh, you know, they're not as close as its relationship with its closer European partners, but they're, they're fairly deep. They're fairly long deals. And my worry would be that in the kind of desperation to get a quick deal, that you might end up signing something that wasn't very consequential. Samir Keynes, economics correspondent and trade guru, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. If you have any thoughts or opinions on what you hear on Money Talks, such as what's happening on the world's stock markets or why the UK should care about its trade deals, then do get in touch. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or you can always send an email to radioateconomist.com. Finally, bars and pubs have not traditionally been the non-drinker's friend. Knocking back pint after pint of juice or fizzy drink gets very boring very quickly. But manufacturers are now showing a little more sympathy for their plight. 
Non-alcoholic drinks are said to be the biggest opportunity in the drinks market right now. And I'm joined by The Economist business correspondent, Rachna Shambhog. Hello, Rachna. Hi, Simon. Now, I'm, I'm asking this from a bitter personal experience, having just, like you, I think, been through what is known as a dry January, having forsworn alcohol for a month. And I found it very difficult. What should I have been drinking? I found it quite difficult as well, Simon, which is why I started looking into this matter in the first place. It actually turns out there's a huge amount of innovation going on in the market. Uh, For example, there are plenty of non-alcoholic versions of alcoholic drinks. We traditionally think of non-alcoholic beer as being either too watery or or not having a very nice flavour. But in fact, quite a few craft non-alcoholic breweries seem to have popped up in the UK and in America. And uh, techniques to filter out the alcohol from craft beer seems to seem to have improved dramatically. The other market that's been growing is um, non-alcoholic spirits, which... Non-alcoholic spirits really does sound like a contradiction in terms. It, it does. Um, I, I was sort of doing the, the, the quote gesture as I was speaking. But again, the alcohol is removed from the spirit and they're distilled with botanicals. So, so like gin, you would drink it with tonic water and apparently it's very tasty. And wine, because non-alcoholic wine has tended to be grape juice. That's true. Non-alcoholic wine has also sort of made a made a bit of a comeback, and you've got lots of British grocers um, stocking their own sort of range of non-alcoholic wines. And again, it's it's the improvement in the uh, in sort of the filtering process that's sort of driven this. And we build this as the biggest opportunity yeah. in the drinks market. Is is that really so? Is it that people are getting so health conscious that we're all finally listening to our doctors who tell us we drink too much? Yes, it's it's not purely driven by um, health, although that, that is one of the big factors. We also know that younger people are drinking less compared with their elders. Um, sort of drinking habits are changing. People aren't drinking at lunchtime as much and they're more mindful when they're drinking. It does seem like sales of non-alcoholic beer are growing faster while sales of beer overall uh, are falling back year on year in some parts of Europe. So it certainly does seem like a very attractive market. And our pubs and bars catching on because another problem I found in in January was that my local pubs really didn't have anything on offer for the non-drinker. There was cans of fizzy drinks, as you say, Mm -hmm. fruit fruit juices, those little bottles of of orange juice and so on, but basically nothing. That's true. I I suspect there might be some early adopters, but a lot of these sales are happening through supermarkets or bottle shops or online sort of websites rather than mainstream pubs and restaurants. But, you know, the the suppliers have told me that that that's only a matter of time. And in your dry January, did you find a favourite tipple? Well, I did try an apple mojito at a restaurant in London with a no alcohol bar, uh, which was very tasty indeed. So I highly recommend that. My thanks to The Economist's Rachana Shambhog. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the American economy and global stock markets, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. In London, this is The Economist. Economist.